Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Nicholas Isles about his biography of Jock Tuzo Wilson, one of Canada's most important scientists and perhaps the most influential geologist in the world in the 20th century. Nick Isles is Professor of Geology at the University of Toronto Scarborough, where he has taught for almost four decades. In addition to his many scientific publications, he is the award-winning author of the popular Rock series of books, including Ontario Rocks, Canada Rocks, and the Canadian Shield, The Rocks That Made Canada, among others. His edited book, Georgian Bay, a unique North American ecosystem, published in 2018, was awarded the Floyd S. Chalmers Medal by the Champlain Society. The book we're going to talk about today is Tuzo, The Unlikely Revolutionary of Plate Tectonics, published in 2022 by AVO UTP, an imprint of the University of Toronto Press. Nick, thank you so much for Thanks joining for us me, today. Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. So what motivated you to write this biography, which I also think is very much a chapter in the history of our scientific understanding of plate tectonics? So what got you to write this combination of biography and history of science? Well, there's a long story and a short story. The long story is I got interested in geology in high school in London, England in the 60s, largely because of the work of Tuzo Wilson. It was so dynamic. It was so new. I can still remember some of his diagrams that were up on the board in the classroom. So that's how I got into geology. And then I've, I've talked about his work for a long time. And um, but don't know much about him. And then I was uh, in Georgian Bay one summer. I do a series of rock walks for the public, and there's usually a gaggle of people uh, walking around an island. It looks like D-Day, and all the boats that arrived. And we walk around. We look at the geology, and you can't you can't explain the geology anywhere in the world without referring to to the Wilson. So I am to mention his name and how he'd been an influence on me as a young man. And um, out of out of the audience stepped this um, tan, sprightly lady and introduced herself as his daughter. And I was, you know, amazed. And um, we got talking and I learned that he'd left a very short biography. It was 160 pages, which dealt mostly with his childhood and wartime service. But there was only three pages on on his unique contribution to geology which we call plate tectonics, and it, it didn't have any detail in there at all. And she was she tried to get it published as is, and um, uh, she asked me advice on it, and I, I read it through, and it didn't have a beginning, it didn't really have an end, there was no context. So I was driving up Highway 400 one day, and I was talking to my wife, who's also a geologist, and she said, well, why don't you write a biography of Tuzo? And it, it's sort of floored me for a second because he's such a a, a a large figure in in the science of geology and i didn't i didn't feel adequate to to tackle it anyway the more i looked at it the more i read about his his own history his family i thought yeah this is going to be a fascinating story and then i um enlisted the help of susan and we spent 
lots of hours sitting around a kitchen table drinking more coffee than we should have done. Um, and then we continued that over Zoom, uh, you know, during the COVID. And she would read everything I wrote. And she wasn't allowed to do a geology course at university. And her father didn't think geology was a fitting profession for a young lady because it was dangerous and he, he knew people that had been killed during field work. So her her knowledge of her father's contribution was uh, limited and, and I think she saw it as an opportunity to um, learn more about his contributions. So that's how it started, a chance encounter in the middle of Georgian Bay. <laughs> right. So who was Tuzo? Well, he was, I've called him the unlikely revolutionary because he comes from a very, very well-off um, family in Ottawa around the turn of the century, 1908, he was born. And his mother was um, independently wealthy. His, his father was a, an engineer, it was a, an odd couple really, but um, his mother was into mountaineering, travel, her name, Tuzo, is given to one of the peaks in um, near Marine Lake in the Valley of the Ten Peaks in Alberta. And um, she climbed that for the first time. And then his father was an engineer, and they'd met in Banff. Um, he was penniless. He was of Scottish descent, arrived in Canada, no money. Um, he'd worked in India, contracted malaria, and he was told, you're going to die unless you go somewhere cool. So he ended up in Canada and uh, very... You know, low prospects, but he ended up supervising construction of a cement factory near Banff, and that's how he met his future wife. And it was a very odd mix, and the family go through the letters. They didn't really approve of the the marriage, but it worked out really well because you know, with her penchant for travel and his industry, um, I think that was the essential background to Tuzo. So he's he's very middle class. Yeah, he's, track. he's more than middle class. He grows up in Rockcliffe, the toniest neighborhood of Ottawa. Yes. Yeah, surrounded by diplomats. Well, I wouldn't know about that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but he's surrounded by diplomats, newspaper owners, scientists, government, high-level government, civil servants, explorers. And he absorbs it all. And then because there was no university in Ottawa at that time that did science, he enrolls at the University of Toronto. He has to pass Latin to get in, of course, because physics, what he wanted to do was then in uh, arts and science. And you need proficiency in Latin. So there's a whole story about how he, the family employed a tutor to cram him in Latin for three months. And, and the tutor gave him the same translations in English that he was later going to be tested on at U of T for his ability to translate them into English. So he has a heads up and he gets in and um, gets bored with physics, actually, goes on geology field trips and is, is transformed uh, by field work. And he, he has a variety of summer jobs and then he switches. He wants to switch into geology, but geology was then viewed at the time, it was a very lowbrow science because geologists just went out and they took their hammers and they busted open rocks. They were looking for minerals and fossils, a very, very utilitarian science. And the physicists, of course, looked down their noses at geologists. So there was a lot of resistance to Tuzo making a switch to geology. So they came up with this compromise. And it was geophysics 
the combination of geology and physics where you build instruments, survey instruments, you go out and uh, you look for mineral deposits and that Tatuza was the best of both worlds. And so he ends up uh, 1930 with a first degree in Canada in geophysics. So it's a brand new field combining geology and physics. So it's, it's, he had a very unusual beginning. And then he did his graduate training in Cambridge and then later at Princeton. And uh, I take it that he probably needed to leave Canada to do that kind of specialized education. Absolutely. And that, that's instrumental in his later development because by going to the States, to Princeton, going to Cambridge, he falls under the spell of of what you could call permanentists. And there was a big debate raging in geology between those folks who saw the Earth's surface as being mobile, continents moving around, and actually having been assembled as part of a much larger supercontinent, which, which was named by Wagner, the leading German advocate of the idea is Pangaea, all the land in Greek, all the land. And the Americans didn't like that. Also at Cambridge, um, they didn't like it there. So he he was brought up under that tradition of, of permanentism. The, the continents have always been fixed and the seas might have lapped and uh, ebbed across the surface. But basically they, as they formed as more or less as we see them today. And this was the big debate that was raging in, in geology and there was a lot of uh, nationalism involved because the leading proponent of mobilism was a German. And this was, of course, fairly soon after the First World War. So there was a lot of anti-German feeling in, in the States and in Britain. And um, that's that set him in his path until the late 60s until he was in himself in his late 50s. And he denounced mobilism on more or less every occasion he could, didn't teach it. Even at Toronto, when he was an undergraduate, there was a professor called A.P. Coleman, and um, Coleman didn't want anything to do with the, the notion that continents were mobile and moved around. And even in the States, there was... It, it had some religious underpinnings too, because the the geology of the North American continent was felt to have been dictated by um, a benevolent creator. There was this divine plan. Some American geologists have said, no, 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 there's an Earth's plan. It's quite natural. The continents evolve, they move around, and they were shot down. And uh, it, it could be bad for your career to... Uh, profess mobilism in an American university in, in the 1930s. So Tuzo, you know, doing graduate work, that 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 uh, set him in his, his almost career-long aversion to any idea that continents could move. So what happened to him after his uh, graduate work, but between that time and, and then the outbreak of the Second World War? Well, he, he basically works for the Geological Survey of Canada on various um, field parties up in the north. And um, the work that he was doing in retrospect was quite ordinary, except in one major regard, in that he he gained pilot's license at Cambridge and regularly took over the controls of planes that were dropping off supplies to these remote survey camps. And you know, you you can see more at 10,000 feet than you can on the ground. At the ground, you're lost. And um, so he pioneered the use of air photos to map 
geologic structures and began to see the the bigger picture, you know, and not get lost for the trees on the ground. So that even though the work he was doing didn't have any lasting significance, um, he was made aware of this new technology, aerial photography, and uh, used that during the war to uh, in operational research in Europe to to map enemy uh, defenses and um, after action reports and and then that triggered a whole series of initiatives in new technology, new cameras, new lenses. So that, that even though he was doing not much in the 1930s, it was important in that respect. Right, and um, you devote a chapter to his wartime experience, and it was incredible what he went through during that time. And so I'd like you to describe this, his, his war to us and the impact that his experience had on his subsequent life as an academic and scientist. Yeah, in many ways it was transformative. He goes in as a, a young first lieutenant and he has to overcome the resistance to the army taking on geologists because geology was a um, restricted profession. They, they, they felt the geologists were more useful being out in the field looking for minerals. That was going to win the war. And so he he has to pull his father's connections in Ottawa with a general McNaughton, and uh, he finally gets in as a young uh, second lieutenant, gets rapidly promoted to first lieutenant, and because of his geology background, he's placed in charge of drilling teams uh, who are all volunteers from uh, Northern Ontario, Quebec mining areas, and McNaughton had this idea of drilling underneath German defences, drilling underneath airfields, packing them full of packing the holes full of explosives and then when required blowing the whole thing up and um it was successful they're called mcnaughton tubes and they're still finding them today in southern england (laughs) 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 full of degraded nitroglycerin but um his proficiency organizing men and getting things done came to the attention of McNaughton and he climbed the ladder very, very quickly in operational research. So he was one minute testing tanks, what they call crab tanks with flails at the front of chains to counteract mines, testing ammunition charges, you know, um, against tanks, all sorts of things and does a lot of traveling and um, rises through the ranks very quickly and, uh, you know, gets promoted to colonel. So he goes from young second lieutenant right at the beginning of the war to colonel. And unfortunately, McNaughton was not very proficient tactically in, in leading troops. He was, he was a scientist, scientist soldier. And Montgomery and uh, Allenbrook uh, disliked him. And he was sent back to Canada in 1943, uh, just before the um, Allied invasion of Sicily. Tuzo came back at the same time. Uh, He was very disappointed um, because he wanted to see the end of the war. He wanted to take the fight to the Germans and see the lights go on in London once more. So he ends back in in Canada and um, with, with no clear idea of what operational research was in Canada. So it was a bit, a bit of a disappointing end to the, his wartime service, but 
a new chapter opens, and that is Arctic warfare. And that was uh, Operation Muskox. Yeah, indeed. Yes, tell us about it. Yeah, 1946. It was a Cold War, and there was some concern that the Russians would invade the U.S. by coming through the back door of Canada. And so there was a need to test men and equipment um, in the north. And Tuzo played a role in working with Bombardier, the uh, Quebec mechanic, to develop um, snowmobiles and uh, leads this three-month expedition through the north. And it went off perfectly and acquired great leadership skills, uh, writing of voluminous reports. And Tuzo came out of that with full credit. Uh, and then really got fed up with the army. The army was melting away, as he said. It had been 250,000 uh, soldiers at the end of the war, and it was 25,000, you know, almost a year later. So there was no future in the army. And um, he didn't want to work for the Geological Survey Canada again because of their resistance to the use of their photos, basically. They, they argued that that was cheating. You had to have boots on the ground. Um, you had to be there. You had to hit that rock with a hammer, uh, not look at it from 10,000 feet. <laughs> so uh, he ends up at the University of Toronto, 1946, and then finds that the same war between physicists and geologists that he experienced <laughs> in the 1920s was still at work, still at work so to speak. So he, he's appointed in physics um, to do geophysics, and he's not really trusted by the physicists. And at the same time, he's not very welcome in geology because he's got a bit of physics and he's more numerate and quantitative than the average geologist. So he's in a bit of a no-man's land. But he, he, at that time, was very uh, expressive about his resistance to continental drift. Um, and that lasted till the late 60s. He does travel the world. You know, he wasn't home very much in that time. Uh, he's head of the International Geophysical Union and um, travels the world exploring how geophysics is done in various countries, visits China, Russia, gets to places that, you know, most people couldn't, particularly Americans. He spent a lot of time in Australia, and the Australians were very keen on, on mobilism and the fact that continents could move. They had really good evidence that Australia had been nestled up against Antarctica and India at one time. You know, clear evidence. And Tuzo didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, I think that hurt, because uh, later on in life, he, he referred to the 50s as his wasted decade, where despite all this evidence around him, he didn't want anything to do with it. He was a, he, Because of his training at Princeton, because of his training in Cambridge, he was a um, devout permanentist. Right. And... Uh... You describe Tuzo's ultimate impact on the science of geology as, as similar to Charles Darwin's impact on the biological sciences and the history of life on Earth. That's pretty high praise. Uh, can you just give us, your lay audience, uh, the lay of the land? What was the state of knowledge beyond this debate about permanence versus uh, mobility what was the state of knowledge before 
the theory of plate tectonics came in and then describe exactly his scientific contribution and why it was so revolutionary. And I take it it had to, he, he in a sense, had to go through a revolution in his own mind to get there. But just describe that if you can. The Second World War is, is the watershed moment. Geology as a discipline was, was stuck in a very deep groove um, up to about 1942. Um, because most geologists were permanentists and they argued that there was no debate about um, moving continents. And then the Second World War came along and new, te- new geophysical technology f- and uh, for mapping the sea floor and particularly for um, detecting submarines. So ships would tow what we call magnetometers and the- these measure the Earth's magnetic field in the hope of detecting anomalies that might be submarines. So all of a sudden, the oceans were mapped. Mm-hmm. Tuzo had this unique ability. It goes back, as I say, to the to the 30s when he was using air photos um, from planes. And it, it was very similar. You, the, this shipborne data that was collected many thousands of meters above the seafloor was, in, in effect, air photos of the ocean floor. And Tuzo began to see these patterns that nobody else did and recognized um, what we call spreading centers where plates are moving apart, uh, subduction zones, and how they were connected. And the breakthrough was the recognition of plates, which he named, which the Earth's surface is broken up into. So it's like crazy paving, but the actual um, paving stones are mobile moving around, interacting with each other, either colliding or, or moving apart. And he uh, could see the big picture. Everybody else was sort of uh, had tunnel vision, but he saw the big global picture. And um, in 1968, the whole field changed, became plate tectonics. People accepted that continents were embedded in these large plates and were mobile. And permanentism was done. It, it was a classic case of a scientific revolution um, or, or what we call a paradigm where the world's never can't be the same and it's irrevocable change. And, and that's the impact that Tuzo's recognition of plates had on geological thinking. And then I think the, the, the big thing too is that, that that describes how the modern earth works and the big question in everybody's mind was, well, okay, what about 250 million years ago? What about 500 million or 4 billion? And then that triggered a whole slew of investigations. And it quickly became apparent that plate tectonics has been at work for a long time. And there's been these supercontinents that have come together and then broken apart. And that is named in, in honor of Tuzo Wilson, the Wilson Cycle. So he, his major contribution is to um, identify how the modern Earth works, but also to, to look in the rearview mirror and say, yeah, well, the same basic scheme works throughout Earth history. And um, that's, that's why geology is so fascinating, I suppose, because we're still testing that, that theory back in time 
we still don't know how plate tectonics works fundamentally because it's all driven by processes deep in in the interior of the planet. But there's there's no question that plate tectonics is does describe how the Earth works. So it's a great theory because it, it poses more questions. Right. Now, when he first uh, proposed this, and uh, I know it became accepted later, it caused a revolution and then eventually the theory replaced previous theories. But as you described, science is a highly competitive sport. I'd call it a contact sport. Uh he he must have uh, run into extreme resistance and there must have been some pretty interesting fights at the time that he introduced this revolutionary new idea. Can you give us an example or two of what happened and, and how these scientists dealt with each other at this time? Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, you have a revolution in thinking and it always leaves stranded, as it were, the gurus of the past and the guys that wrote textbooks based on what is now perceived as to be a flawed model. So the theory of plate tectonics was accepted very, very quickly in, in the course of about five years. There were still skirmishes. The war had finished, but there were still skirmishes going on in individual departments. And at Toronto, especially, there were those people who were looking at mineralogy and... Um, other aspects of geology without any regard at all to the bigger picture, you know. And and Tuzo could be impatient, you know, like most revolutionaries, they want things done yesterday. And there are a number of uh, big arguments, big public spats that he had with the more traditional geologists in the department. But, but more widely, uh, globally, plate tectonics superseded permanentism very, very quickly. Uh, by that time, by that time, the leading permanentists were dead or retired, and there was a whole new generation that had come to the fore just after the war, and and were used to dealing with um, computers, uh, large data sets from the oceans. It was a different game entirely. It was very radical change, very radical change. But he was the least likely revolutionary because of his long years of disavowing any form of um, mobilism. So he had a sort of road to Damascus uh, conversion in late 1961 in Hawaii. And he goes to the top of Mauna Loa volcano, gazes down into the distance, and you can see these old dead volcanoes like a line in the distance. And he figures out that, yeah, they'd been born on the ocean floor. They'd grown up by volcanic activity as islands, and then they'd been physically moved by the movement of the plate away from the source of all the hot rock coming up from the mantle. And he, that was, you know, he, the, the, he has this page that he rips out of his notebook and he, he smoked and uh, he lit his lighter, burnt a hole in a paper and then pulled the paper on, burnt another hole. And that to him was a mimic of these volcanic islands that had been once active but were now moved and that was that was demonstrable evidence of the mobilism of plates so that was that was pretty dramatic uh, conversion for him in 1961 i note that after he uh, retired from the university of toronto and of course in those days it was mandatory retirement he moved to the ontario science center 
that's in a sense where he ended his career. Can you describe his experiences there and whether he continued to still work with the ideas of plate tectonics or was he mainly in the business of making it more understandable? Yeah, he retired in 74 and I think his productive years were behind him. He, he, did, he does say that he felt exhausted by then and um, his health was beginning to suffer in the early 80s. And um, But he does a fantastic job of what we today would call outreach. And uh, somebody said that every theory needs to be sold. And he basically sold plate tectonics through the Science Centre. Um, Science North was opened up in Sudbury under his watch. And um, not just plate tectonics, but science in general to the public and, and organises these fantastic uh, exhibitions. He was fascinated by Chinese uh, science and who who had embraced plate tectonics the russians didn't they they were a little apprehensive about plate tectonics because it largely come about because of military huge allied military um investments in marine science so they were a bit distrustful about it but the chinese had no such qualms um and they becomes in the last few years of his life um, after he'd retired from the science, so they re-engaged with geology. And I think there's a sense, a very strong sense that he'd, he'd um, perhaps misspent his energy on, on things other than geology. For example, he, he, he does a lot of stuff with NATO. Um, and even there's this huge Ontario Commission on the safety of aluminum wiring, which um, he led and, and wrote this huge series of reports. And I think later on he, he realized that he'd been, he, should have, he should not have left geology. So he, he starts to get back into it again in the last few years of his life. Um, and I can remember several lectures that he gave in the early 90s. Um, and then, of course, he passed in, in 93. Right. Now, your book is beautifully and effectively illustrated, and I just would like you to tell us about your own approach to illustrations, because it's rare that you see a book that's so effectively illustrated, if I can put it that way. Well, uh, thank you. I, I come from a tradition in geology where to draw a diagram uh, in 3D, and you'd use a computer to do that nowadays, really tells you whether you're on the right track or not when you have to map out three-dimensional relationships between rocks and in a subsurface. And the, the simple act of drawing a figure gives you great insights. So I've always led the public through, illust through illustrations what are complex issues in the text. And um, I... When I pick up a book, that's the first thing I look for. Are there good illustrations to help me understand what the author's talking about? So that's that's something I strive for. And I had excellent um, assistance in generating the figures. Susan Wilson, his daughter, was very, very generous in providing photographs. So we ended up with a very well-illustrated book. And uh, I have to say that we left out illustrations too. <laughs> That was the only source of frustration in the in the whole exercise. Um, I was sad at the conclusion of the project, and the only frustration had been 
in in four years of working on it, not continuously, was the fact that I had to leave out space dictated that I had to leave out certain illustrations. Well, it's 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 better illustrated than the vast majority of books uh, in the fields of either biography or the history of science. So I I think that it's uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. Oh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about Tuzo. My guest today was Nicholas Isles, the author of Tuzo, The Unlikely Revolutionary of Plate Tectonics, published in 2022 by AVO UTP, an imprint of the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to also thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 4th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and is supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.